You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, we have the latest from China following the death of one of the leading figures of communism, Zhang Zemin, and the continued protests in response to harsh COVID lockdowns. In Hungary, we look at European Commission recommendations that 7.5 billion euros of EU funds be withheld from Hungary over rule of law concerns. Plus... The floor of the United States Senate rummaging through desks on the House of Representatives, threatening the safety of duly elected officials. It's not protest, it's insurrection. Almost a year after protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol, two members of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers, are found guilty of seditious conspiracy. We'll flick through the day's papers and reveal who's come out on top in the annual Art Power 100 list. That's all ahead, here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Russian forces have tried to advance in the east and south of Ukraine. Meanwhile, a blast from a letter bomb at Kyiv's embassy in Madrid has injured a staff member. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is facing a possible impeachment threat over the Farmgate scandal. And the Fleetwood Mac singer Christine McVie has died at the age of 79. She was behind hits such as Little Lies and Everywhere. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. Now, there was a feeling that China's path through history came to a crossroads this week. It started with widespread protests against the country's zero Covid policy and also a rather more surprising wider call for the end of Xi Jinping's regime. Then the death was announced of one of the leading figures of communism, Zhang Zemin. Well, Stephen Lynch is the managing director for the British Chamber of Commerce in China, and he joins me down the line from Beijing. Stephen, thanks for coming on The the Globalist. What is the latest on the protests there? Well, I suppose um, I've been in China for for 12 years and I've never seen the levels of social and economic disruption. Um, We've seen protests in cities right across China, um, and I think that demonstrates the real anger over this zero COVID policy. And, you know, for many, this is also um, a reaction to the party invading sort of every corner of everyone's life. And I've lived here for, for a while, but right now you literally can't leave your house with that sort of that that feeling and, and that happening. And I think the extraordinary levels of, of civil unrest that we're seeing at the moment is purely down to zero COVID fatigue. People are scared, they're angry, they're tired. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be an exit strategy um, to, 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 to remove ourselves from, from zero COVID. So China's heading into its fourth year of the pandemic, still with a zero COVID policy, while the entirety of the rest of the world has, has learned to live alongside COVID. So right now in China, we're seeing images of the Football World Cup where countries are coming together from all over the world. And, you know, meanwhile, what's happening back in China? Well, we're going back into lockdowns, quite harsh lockdowns. And so I think this what's happening up, what's happening is is the bubbling of three years um, of sort of anger, confusion around zero COVID. And again, just a demand 
for an exit strategy or certainly just a roadmap to, to what might happen in the next few years. And is there any indication that that will happen? Will these protests have any effect on the zero COVID policy? So I think one thing to say is, again, you know, this differs for every country. But here in China, the zero COVID policy, it worked for 2020 and large parts of 2021. Whether people disagree with it or agree with it, for this country, it worked. It was clear. It was consistent. It allowed businesses, the economy, people to return to some level of normality. Three years on, 2022 and heading into 2023, it's not working. It's almost impossible to to keep COVID out uh, at a country this size. And I think people are starting to realise that. (laughs) And I think people are starting to look at the rest of the world thinking, well, hold on a second. You know, people are going to the World Cup and I can't even go to my local park. So I think... There is confusion and there is that, you know, there needs to be something that happens from the Chinese authorities to address this. One of the issues and one of the the, the problems with with the protests that are taking place is we have central policy that is trying to shift. It's dynamic zero COVID. So it's trying to shift away. But the local implementation and the local communication is very, very poor. And they don't want to have any problems on their side. So they're just clamping right down, even though that's not the actual policy. So I think it's unclear whether the the policy, the central policy will change. But one thing that they're trying to do is make sure that the local implementation matches the central policy. Let's turn now to have a look at the death of Zhang Zemin, because he was elevated to the head of the Communist Party as a loyalist during the Tiananmen Square protests. Now, that was a different era when it comes to protest in China, wasn't it? Uh, yes, you could you you could say that again. But I, you know, I think there's obviously there's a lot of parallels that are trying to be drawn um, from from 1989 and, and obviously to to today. But you know, what we'll say is Zhang was you know an inf- influential character in China's opening up and reform. And you know, we would say if if Deng was the visionary behind the opening up and reform policy, well, well, Zhang was the guy who made it happen. He was the guy who took China to the next level and. You know, his his role was so critical in, in leading these economic reforms in this high speed, you know, China growth. Um, and he was also the one where let's you know, let's not forget 1989, you know, China on the global stage was was terrible. You know, they had a bad reputation with with all countries. So it was, he was is very much his job to, to take China global. You know, he was the face of China. And, and to a large extent, he was very accommodating. To, to opening things up, to accommodating Western business. He was globally minded in, in, in lots of aspects and, and certainly economically minded. And so he oversaw notable events, you know, the World Trade Organization, joining the trade organization, handover of Hong Kong. Um, obviously, he has a very checkered past because with opening up, also brought in huge levels of political fractions and corruption within the party. So it, it's very interesting to see see the parallels that people are trying to draw from from Zhang passing away and, and back to 1989. But Zhang was presided over years of global economic expansion for China. Now, there is a tradition in China of using public mourning gatherings for past leaders to express discontent with the current regime. And I wonder if that's likely to happen here and if this death could form a, a rallying point and a legitimate reason for people to gather. So I would say, given what's just happened in the last week, two weeks, I find this very, very unlikely. Um, what has happened, you know, I'm sitting here in Beijing and, you know, there's almost a police car in every single corner. Um, so, you know, they are very wary of what's just happened. So I find any public gathering um, would be very unlikely uh, unless it was scripted. Um, I think that would be would be the way that things happen. Um Zhang kind of disappeared from public life as well. So he hasn't been seen publicly for, for a long time. Um, but the death and commemoration of any leader or any former leader 
within any country is relatively sensitive, but but definitely here in here in China. And I think we're starting to see that today. The state media um, all commemorating, promoting nationalism. The state media, lots of uh, websites have also gone black and white to pay tribute um, to to Jiang. And I think we're also seeing an outpouring on social media. I think slight uh, you know restrictions have been lifted to to allow people to mourn and express feelings rather than taking to the streets. So I think the internet will be the outlet for a lot of this reaction rather than the streets. Mm. Now, Charles Michel, who's the president of the European Council, is in China for talks with uh, Xi Jinping. That's in an effort to strengthen ties between Brussels and Beijing. What is international business confidence like in China at present? So I don't want to give all all my details away because next week, the British Chamber of Commerce, we actually release our sentiment survey, um, which looks at all the issues that that you've just mentioned. But, you know, one thing I will say, it's very, very clear. Sentiment um, is at an all time low for for British businesses. And anecdotally, I've spoken to many foreign businesses and and domestic. You know, this is the lowest you know I've experienced it in my time here. Um, So I think we really are facing challenging headwinds. We're seeing massive levels of uncertainty. Risk is almost at its highest level, higher than it's ever been. You know, China's position as a priority market um, is changing. It's shifting. And many businesses are reporting that they know there's a long-term future here in China. But how on earth can you actualize the long-term if you simply can't get past the short-term? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty um, that needs to be addressed from the Chinese authorities. Mm. Now, Michelle is there mostly, obviously, to look at this these business relations. But do you think that he will bring up the protests? I imagine he would. I mean, it's I mean, I'm not sure to comment on the, the politics of, of the European Union. But, you know, one thing we are concerned about, and I will, I will put it this way, is, you know, China has two major things to, to overcome um, for to restore opportunities and restore kind of confidence in the market. And this maybe ties back to Jiang's legacy. Number one is opening up and reform. You know, there's lots of concerns from foreign businesses that post 20th Party Congress, ideology is trumping the economy um, and nationalism sort of is, is is taking over from, you know, from, say, foreign business opportunities. And, and the second is obviously COVID-19. I mean, what is the end of COVID-19? Will there ever be a, an end to, to COVID-19? So I think, you know, the ball is very much in China's court with a lot of these aspects. You know, there is still enormous opportunities for countries to collaborate. And I'll certainly talk about from the British Chamber of Commerce. You know, there's enormous opportunities for the UK and China to benefit from this, this relationship. And I think our new prime minister has brought in uh, robust pragmatism, I think it's called. So I think, you know, the Europeans, you know, Europe's China's largest trading partner. You know, there is still things to be won and to be to be lost. So it's very, very important that we have, even if you disagree, strong engagement and strong relationships. Mm. I wonder how good the internal relationship within the EU is, given the fact that uh, Michelle has undertaken this as a solo mission without the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen. Is that a sign that the relationship between the two might be strained? Um, well, again, I, I'm not one to comment on the the, the European internal workings. Um, I mean, one thing we have seen is um, Olaf Scholz visited China uh, just last month. And I think that's a demonstration of the value that Germany places on China. And I think the value that sits here in China, I think it's a third of German car manufacturers um, profits sit here in China. Europe's largest trading partner is is is, is China. Um, you know, so within this fractured geopolitical space, there is still very strong, robust 
trade and investment ties. And again, they must be considered. Um, and I think one of the big problems I see from sitting here in China, certainly the last three years of, of COVID, is there's multiple aspects to a relationship. There's one, the, the government to government, two, the business to business, and three, the people to people. Now, all levels, they've been frayed. Um, and I think we need to build back these uh, these three pillars to get back into the room, to get back and talking. Because again, whether you fundamentally agree that China is a strategic partner or a strategic rival, you know, not engaging with China is is going to be a problem. It's going to make problems worse. So I think, you know, we welcome more engagement, more conversations, you know, and they're not going to be easy. There might there might be uh, values and red lines that you simply will not cross, but you must engage and you must continue the conversation. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. That was Stephen Lynch there. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. Coming up to 14 minutes past 10 in Minsk, that's 7.14 here in London. We still don't know exactly what caused the death this week of Vladimir Makai, one of the closest advisers to the Belarusian dictator, President Alexander Lukashenko. He was seen as one of Lukashenko's cooling voices, balancing the increasingly heated anti-Western rhetoric. So what will happen to Belarus now that such a voice is silent? Well, Denis Kazakevich is a journalist and an expert on Belarus based in Brussels and joins me now. Denis, good morning to you. Can you tell us more about Vladimir Makai? Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so he was one of the most, uh, if not the most remarkable person in Lukashenko entourage. Uh, by, by his background, he uh, uh had uh, the education in for uh, in foreign languages and then uh, he uh, had military background uh, he's suspected very wildly there are speculations that he, he was involved in intelligence for about a decade or so and then interesting fact that uh, he got his education uh, in diplomacy from uh, diplomatic academy in vienna in pre-Lukashenko years. So he was uh, uh, mm, a blind ser servant to Lukashenko with education from the Western uh, postgraduate school in diplomacy. Very remarkable personage. And what were his various roles within the government of Belarus? Because he undertook several different positions. Yes, indeed. Uh, in uh, his uh, rise to power came uh, during Lukashenko uh, years. Uh, before that, he held uh, rather unremarkable positions. But uh, during Lukashenko years, he became uh, ultimately his chief of staff. 
or uh, head of uh, Lukashenko administration, as it's called in Belarus. So, as you can guess, it, he was very, very close to Lukashenko. And after being chief of staff in 2012, he became the minister minister of foreign affairs. And uh, he was uh, the mastermind behind uh, the detente uh, between the EU, the West, uh, towards uh, Belarus. Uh, he was the architect of this very interesting structure when uh, uh, Lukashenko stopped being the last dictator of Europe because the Russia annexed Crimea. And uh, in return for non-recognition of Crimea, very formally though, but in return of some symbolic gestures, uh, the EU and the West more generally uh, were opening the gates for financial support uh, for Lukashenko regime. So he was very shrewd on that. Do we have any detail on how he died? Uh, not. Th- there are some speculations in the local press, but it's not uh, concur- uh, concurred by multiple sources i would say some some say it was uh, the heart problems some say it was a stroke that's it's really it's not uh, it's not confirmed we we don't know it's just it's just it's just a very it seems very improbable when the person 64 in seemingly perfect health holding a very important position uh, in their in the midst of the very lively agenda uh, just, just dies unexpectedly. It's it's very unlikely, that's true, but we don't know the cause exactly. But I mean, the timing is very significant, isn't it? Given who he was uh, going to meet this week. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, so he, he was uh, planning to meet uh, with uh, Russian uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, but even more kind of telling the his last official meeting, as I understand, was with the apostolic uh, nuncio from uh, so with diplomat from Vatican. So he was constantly trying to to find the links with West. So he's he's actually his main specialty, uh, as New York Times labeled him, he was bridge to West for Lukashenko region. So, I mean, essentially what people are saying is that once he's out of the way, perhaps that clears the way for Russia to be more aggressive and to use Belarus more effectively than they have done before. Previously, the country's just been a staging post for soldiers to to, to uh, invade Ukraine. With him out the way, can will Russia, will we see a significant change in policy? Uh, so it is a very complex uh, things are happening now in Belarus. So on one hand, Russia is put uh, pressure on the regime to join in. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people of Belarus do not want to to fight uh, in Putin's war. That's that's very clear. And uh, uh, speaking of calculus, uh, uh, the People, if uh, sorry, rather, if uh, the regime will go full force to invading Ukraine, then there is a um, probability that uh, people of Belarus will rebel. So that's 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 why they 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 try to to find this uh, 
good moment. Uh, they they working constantly on arresting activists uh, who are against the war. And I must say that uh, it's untold story that people of Belarus, uh, they stood out uh, significantly against the war. So uh, they, blow, they blew railways uh, in some cases. Uh, they took to the streets and, and uh, were arrested afterwards. So it's like, it's dynamic situation. On, on the one hand, there is a pressure from the Russia mostly. On the other hand, there is a resistance of, of, of the people. And uh, in that situation, it's just McKay, is, he was not a good actor. It's just he was like a, a counterbalance in that uh, configuration, with, which uh, kept uh, more or less some sort of a balance. And now what's happened, a very remarkable player is out is and balance it's uh, lost is just because of that the systems became unstable and that's why the risk of belarus invading uh, ukraine i see it's much higher dennis thank you very much indeed that was dennis kazakiewicz now, still to come on the programme, we get the latest on the spat between the EU and Hungary over rule of law concerns. We'll also have the business headlines and ask what exactly is power in the art world. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now to the US, where two members of a far-right militia have been found guilty for their roles in the January the 6th attacks on the US Capitol. The Oath Keepers is one of the largest far-right anti-government groups in the country, and its founder, Stuart Rhodes, is one of those sentenced under the rare charge of seditious conspiracy. Well, Julie Norman is the co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics and joins us now. Julie, thanks for, for, for speaking to us. Who are the Oath Keepers and how much influence do they have? Yes. So the Oath Keepers are a pretty high profile far right militia group in the U.S. Uh, they formed in 2009 and they're an interesting group because they're made up mostly of former um, people who have served in the military, veterans, police officers and are kind of, uh, I guess, recruited in the sense of saying, you know, we are recruiting to stand up against uh, laws or directives that we think are unjust or un-American. So um, it's a unique group in that way that has a lot of influence. And uh, they obviously were one of the groups that was very much involved in the riot on January 6th. Now, they've been charged with seditious conspiracy. That's a rarely used charge. Uh, t- tell us more. 
Yeah, so this is one of the reasons why this case was so high profile. Seditious conspiracy is a crime that is rarely um, you know, charged, and it's essentially when there's a crime involving a plot to attack or overthrow the state. So it suggests obviously this idea that there were several people involved and that there was pre-planning, that this wasn't just a riot or a protest that got out of hand. And again, that the ultimate aim was to indeed overthrow the state or to uh, hinder or delay the execution of U.S. law. So it is quite serious. And um, the leader of the Oath Keepers himself, as well as one other associate, were found guilty of this, which is the highest level crime that we've seen prosecuted for January 6th and will likely lay the groundwork for several upcoming trials. And how severe is the punishment? So the punishment is up to 20 years in prison. Um, the uh, head of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and his associate were also found guilty of obstructing Congress, um, which is a punishable by another uh, potential 20 years in prison. In reality, I would say the sentence could be less than that, more in the seven to nine year range. Um, and again, I would emphasize it's not um, the length of the sentence that I think is most significant here for most Americans or for justice as much as it is this specific crime and what it means and what it says about January 6th. Mm. I wonder what it means for Trump, given the Capitol riots were enacted in his name and, of course, that he's recently announced his 2024 presidential bid. Yes, yeah, so so much is still swirling around Trump, as we know, including the ongoing January 6th uh, congressional investigation, as well as just the ongoing investigations with Congress. So all of this is swirling. I would say, though, a case like this, it's interesting because it does um, focus very much on these specific individuals' actions in that day and do not necessarily implicate Trump in that. So obviously it has association, it will have a big effect. And I guess what it does do is it again suggests that this was something that had pre-planning. It is something that people were probably motivated and inspired by Trump. But again, connecting those dots for criminal culpability for Trump is a much higher bar. Mm. Uh, It's been revealed that Trump had dinner last week with the right-wing extremist Nick Fuentes alongside Kanye West. Who is Fuentes? Yeah, so um, Fuentes is another um, white supremacist and uh, um, misogynist and racist, uh, uh, I would say, um, broadcaster in the United States who has um, kind of risen to the fore in the last few years. He was present at the 2017 Charlottesville riot and since then has kind of made a name of being a very outspoken white nationalist through YouTube and other channels, um, you know, spouting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, um, making light of the Holocaust, um, just kind of a range of um, of things in that class. So he was invited to that dinner with Trump by Kanye West. Um, Trump and Mar-a-Lago are maintaining that Trump did not know Fuentes was going to be there and didn't know who he was. But the fact is, the dinner did take place. Trump hasn't condemned or apologized for it. And it's really causing some consternation within the Republican Party with many calling out Trump for this. But as usual, many others who are just waiting for this to blow over. I mean, Trump's refused to apologize. And and we're also told that he ignored several warnings that he shouldn't take the meeting. Well, that's right. And again, there's lots of different reports coming from Mar-a-Lago with how much Trump knew about this or not. I think it again, it just underscores the um, the lack of protocol that we see surrounding Trump. The fact that if he didn't know who was coming to dinner with him, why didn't he know? Why wasn't there a system of checking identifications and and, uh, and vetting and whatnot at Mar-a-Lago um, when meeting with a former and perhaps again future president? So there's a lot of culpability regardless of how much he knew or not, I would say there. And again, once the deed has happened, 
happened. Um, you know, there are, again, quite vocal calls for him to apologize. And in normal Trump fashion, he is just not uh, not engaging with those, at least as of yet. I mean, you, you mentioned the response from Republican lawmakers that really some very senior figures have been quite outspoken about this and, and really very angry. And I wonder if, if the anger shown over this also relates to Trump's disastrous effect on the midterm results. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the timing of this, uh, you know, it's coming after the midterms when most of Trump's highest profile backed candidates, uh, you know, either did not win or, or underperformed. With that said, many Trump candidates did do OK in the midterms. And I think that's important to remember. But the party is seeing it as the Trump backed candidates really held them back and kept them from from taking both houses or with a larger majority. So it's on that that um, theme, I would say, that then you know people are kind of looking for ways to criticize. Trump. And I would say especially those who are looking to run perhaps in 2024 themselves and want to differentiate themselves from Trump on some of these kinds of issues. So we saw Chris Christie, Mike Pence, some of the big names that we expect to be coming forward in 2024 being some of the first to denounce this. Mm. And I wonder if the January the 6th trials feed into this same anger. I, I think they do. I mean, I would say a couple of things, though. I mean, January 6th has been a major focus point for, um, you know, most Democrats, for many moderates. But I would say many on the right and many MAGA and Trump supporters in particular um, have essentially moved on from January 6th, have not been watching the investigations of the hearings have not, you know, has not gotten a lot of coverage on Fox or definitely on some of the other more right-wing news stations. So I would say there's um, almost a a tale of two Americas with how much the focus is on January 6th. Some see it as a major inflection point that still deserves incredible attention and focus, whereas others think it's something that is in the past and kind of needs to be moved on from. So um, I would say with Trump supporters, it's probably not hitting as hard as it is with maybe um, some others in the country. Mm. Uh, Julie, just one more thing before you go. How dangerous then is that group of people? Should the same thing play out? If Trump runs in 2024 and doesn't win, are we looking at, at future insurrections? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say um, it's important to realize these groups have always been there. I think they've been more visible um, since Trump was on the scene. Um, I don't think it's a guarantee that we'll see the kind of violence again that we saw. I think uh, this last election was a good test run that things can stay normal and stable, even when things don't go the way of Trump and his candidates. Um, There's obviously be a lot more preparation and a lot more prevention and, and keeping an eye on things going into 2024 that I think we should not be overly alarmist about it, but should be realistic that this threat is always out there and needs to be taken seriously. Julie Norman, thank you very much indeed. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russian forces have tried to advance in the east and south of Ukraine. Meanwhile, a blast from a letter bomb at Kyiv's embassy in Madrid has injured a staff member. Following the incident, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, ordered all Kyiv's embassies abroad to urgently strengthen security. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is facing a possible impeachment threat over the Farmgate scandal. The country's parliament will decide next week whether he broke an anti-corruption law after covering up a $4 million theft from his farm in 2020. And the Fleetwood Mac singer Christine McVie has died at the age of 79. The British singer-songwriter left the group after 28 years in 1998, but returned in 2014 and was behind hits like Little Lies and Everywhere. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
Hungary has failed to pass the required 17 rule of law reforms demanded by the European Commission in order to unlock 7.5 billion euros worth of funding. The country had until November the 19th to do so, and although a number of reforms have been undertaken, the EU has recommended the money be withheld, though member states can vote on this uh, on December the 6th. Well, I'm joined now by Justin Spike, AP's Hungary correspondent based in Budapest. Uh, Good morning to you, Justin. What is it that the EU is most concerned about? Good morning. Um, So as with a lot of uh, issues dealing with uh, EU bureaucracy, this issue is a bit complicated, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. The EU is still concerned that there are rule of law and uh, and corruption issues uh, in Hungary that have gone unaddressed. Now, as you mentioned, the Hungarian government has undertaken in the last several months to address a lot of these concerns that the European Commission has in order to gain access to this some seven and a half billion euros uh, in funding from the from the EU's next seven year budget. Uh, but uh, of these 17 uh, commitments that they made, they were unable to fulfill them all to the to the commission's satisfaction. And basically what's going on here is that the commission is using uh, a new mechanism, the so-called conditionality mechanism, which is basically designed to protect EU funds from misuse in member states. So one of the big concerns with Hungary is that uh, it's believed in the commission that there's widespread corruption and and cronyism using EU funds to distribute uh, in public procurement proceedings uh, to allies and friends of uh, of the governing Fidesz party, allies of uh, Hungarian uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and and the commission is attempting to protect those funds from such misuse. Right. Uh, And member states could vote on this on December the 6th. So that's when economy ministers gather in Brussels for an an ECOFIN meeting. Uh, Budapest has blocked the adoption of a global corporate tax, which is going to be discussed then. So is this tit for tat? Is it blackmail? You know, that's something that a lot of uh, officials in in Brussels have have been suggesting openly, in fact, uh, the Hungarian government insists that, uh, that these political questions such as this this global minimum corporate tax, as well as an 18 billion euro package of funding uh, to assist Ukraine, uh, which it's also holding up and, 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 and vetoing in the process, uh, are disconnected, that, that there's no connection between, between Hungary holding these processes up and, uh, and this whole debate over the seven and a half billion uh, euros in funding. But uh, but this has not convinced everybody in Brussels who suggests that that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is blocking these measures as a means of exerting leverage on the EU, uh, in a sense, to blackmail it into unfreezing uh, these budgetary and pandemic relief funds. Mm. And what plans does Orban and Hungary have to complete the rest of the reforms? Is that likely to happen? So yesterday, in in reaction to this decision uh, by the European Commission, the Hungarian official who has been sort of the the point man in negotiating uh, with the Commission said that uh, that Hungary sees the decision as a significant step forward uh, towards Budapest gaining access to these suspended funds. So he said they're delighted uh, to see that uh, that there's been that there's been progress because essentially the Commission has left the door open for the seven and a half billion euros in funds to be released in addition to five and 5.8 billion uh, euros in, in pandemic relief funds. Uh, that plan was actually recommended to be approved by the commission, but with the caveat that, uh, that Budapest still has to carry out additional reforms in order to gain access to it. So essentially it's just kind of kicking the can down the road 
so that sometime in 2023, if Budapest is able to carry out these reforms, they will have access to all of those funds and they'll be unfrozen. And given the fact that the Hungarian economy is really uh, in a tough spot right now, the, the currency has, has dipped to record lows, uh, fear of a recession looming, uh, they're really going to want to gain access to all of these funds. And I think that the, the willingness to compromise and the willingness to implement reforms is quite high at the moment. Justin, thank you very much. That was journalist Justin Spike speaking to us from Budapest. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is 10.36 in Ankara, 8.36 in Zurich, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. I'm joined by Ruth Michelson, a journalist based in Istanbul. Uh, Ruth, thanks for joining us and good morning to you. The World Cup, uh, whilst I'm not particularly interested in the sporting side of it, it is generating a lot of stories off the pitch. Uh, Tell us more. Absolutely. So we'll start with some of the coverage in the New York Times and the Financial Times looking at how um, essentially the the politics of the World Cup has meant that uh, there are renewed ties between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So the uh, New York Times has some very interesting coverage from the border town of Al-Assad, just uh, next next to Qatar in Saudi Arabia, um, where there are local businessmen who are thrilled about the tournament. Uh, there are Saudi companies advertising in even in London, they say, saying if you can't get a hotel in Qatar, um, come and stay in Saudi. Um, but this is also after, you know, healing a regional dispute that we saw just a few years ago. And the New York Times mentions that um, Bahrain isn't feeling so friendly towards Qatar, certainly not the UAE, even though there are plenty of fans staying the night in Dubai and flying into Doha to watch matches. Financial Times mentioning uh, that the tournament has essentially united uh, people who are critical of Western criticism of the tournament, essentially. So interesting choice quote from a Dubai businessman here where they said, these silly pressures over human rights have managed to do the impossible. They united the region on something. Very, very interesting. Let's move on now to this new generation of politicians in the US Democratic Party. Absolutely. So this is the um, the election of Hakeem Jeffries as the new congressional Democratic leader. He is the first black leader of a party in the US Congress. He will replace Nancy Pelosi. And he is part of what a lot of this coverage is calling a new generation of leaders because he will be assisted by Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and the caucus vice chair, Pete um, Aguilar, who is from California. Um, That's in the number two and three positions. Um, So, you know, AP mentioning that um, they say it's rare that a party that lost the midterm elections would so easily regroup stands in stark contrast to the Republicans. So this is all meant to be a picture of unity, a new generation. Um, 
Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, um, or incoming Senate Majority Leader, rather, um, who um, has basically said that uh, Hakeem is, ve is very good at reaching out to people of many ideologies. This is all about, you know, unity and change. Um, but there are others that have said that his basically uncontested election was a missed opportunity, notably Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's quoted in the New York Times as saying, this is the most significant generational change we have seen in House Democrats in several decades. I personally believe we would benefit for a, from a debate on what that means. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, uh, Jeffries is three decades younger than many of, of the people he's serving alongside. He's also the first black leader of a party in Congress. Absolutely. I mean, I think the idea of uh, AOC's statement is that because it was an uncontested election, there's there's lots of discussion about the idea that both um, that the entire trio of leaders basically have been planning this sort of historic ascent for a long time. It was very celebrated. It was uncontested. Um, it's it's sort of interesting that AOC there is seems to be the lone voice um, saying, you know, we should really have a discussion if we're going to have this big change. What, what what represents our party? Is is it these people? Is it just about uh, their gender or the colour of their skin? Should we have a more wide ranging debate before just appointing people? Mm. Um, but she seems to be uh, the only person that has made that criticism, at least in the coverage that I've read. Mm. Uh, now, let's have a look at this huge kind of financial implosion <laughs> that uh, we've been reading about. This is Sam Bankman-Fried. Absolutely. I mean, incredible comments that he made last night. Incredible that he even decided um, to to appear at all, really. I mean, um, OK, it's via live video link, but exactly as you said, it was against his lawyer's advice, which is what he told the deal book conference. Um, so there was some interesting mixture of comments. So quoted by The New York Times, for example, as saying, look, I screwed up. I was CEO which is true. Um, but then he also um, told the conference he blamed uh, huge management failures. Um, and he also said, um, at another point, he said, I, I didn't know exactly what was going on. So he he's at one hand mit admitting to mistakes and on the other using the opportunity of talking to this conference in a very rare fashion um, to sort of say, well, I, at another point, I didn't knowingly commingle funds, which is exactly what he's accused of doing. Mm, mm. I mean, this is something that's really going to stay in the headlines for a while, isn't it? It's, it's quite a, a lesson for, for, for those involved in that type of business. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, this is something that, you know, has been called the sort of Lemon Brothers moment of cryptocurrency. Um, there's certainly questions about what this means for crypto as, as an industry, which I think are extremely legitimate. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, I think, was also focused on Sam Bankman-Fried's sort of personality, what he represents in the tech industry, that here is someone that was celebrated as this kind of wunderkind. And, you know, this is maybe the downside of, of massive amounts of money being invested in someone that doesn't really give the uh, the impression at this point that they actually knew what they were doing. So incredible sort of quote in the Washington Post where he says, seeming a bit nervous as he occasionally sipped a can of La Croix sparkling water, Bankman Freed referenced personal accountability throughout the session. Um, he's quoted in Vanity Fair as saying, look, I've had a bad month and then getting laughs from the audience, which 
yeah, true. You know, he's he understands the situation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone should have invested their money with him. Yeah, an overabundance of, uh, of just being optimistic, it would seem, all, all the way around. Uh, let's end by looking at this story from a zoo in Sydney. Uh, absolutely. So <laughs> CCTV has revealed, cracked the case of how a group of lions last month escaped the zoo, um, in the words of um, One News, which is a New Zealand uh, website, saying left zookeepers scratching their heads, which doesn't sound like what else is included in the coverage, which sounds like people were running for cover as the zoo was in a code one lockdown. But the CCTV footage, according to The Guardian, um, shows that the lions um, escaped the zoo, um, starting with one of the lion cubs, stayed close to the fence and then got themselves back inside. Incredible addition at the end of the story from The Guardian that this marks nearly three years after a group of baboons escaped a research facility near Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. What an anniversary. Absolutely. <laughs> Ruth, thank you very much indeed. That was Ruth Michelson there. And this is The Globalist. Keen for some well-informed company to take you from your suite to your sun lounger this summer? Well, the Monocle Companion is out now. Packed with 50 inspiring essays to improve everything from your vacation to your vocation, our first ever paperback is packed with long reads, inspiration and cheery ideas to make you happy. Head to monocle.com for more. It's time to talk business now with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Good morning to you, Vicky. Good morning. Uh, let's start by having a look at the story on Eurozone inflation. Indeed. I mean, the, the uh, surprising thing is that inflation seems to be uh, coming down um, in the EU, which uh, um, I think given everything has been going on for quite some time now, um, came as a little bit of a surprise for everybody. Uh, and that's um, because, of course, uh, you know, the, the various governments in Europe have put all sorts of measures to try and restrict increases in energy costs in particular. But there is a sign overall uh, that um, that perhaps, you know, the peak in inflation has been met. Um, and now we are beginning to go into either plateauing or uh, inflation coming down. That does not mean, of course, that we don't still have a problem with energy prices. Uh, but 10% inflation is still pretty high. Uh, and the question really is what happens next and um, if there is going to be any more concern about the war in Ukraine and any escalation that we're seeing taking place right now, then the the an energy price um, sort of profile may well change very significantly. But for the moment, of course, they're still having to absorb quite a lot of increases. But those increases haven't been anything like as, as sharp as they were in the last few months. And what we're seeing in terms of um, the, the, the sort of forward um, contracts that exist for gas in Europe, uh, they have been falling quite significantly until recently. So that is going to be reflected over a period of time in lower energy prices as well than the ones that we have been used to. So that's good news in many ways. Um, it does not take uh, in the inflation rate anywhere near the, the sort of target rate of 2%. And the expectation, of course, is that the ECB will continue to raise rates. The question is, how fast? And coming, actually, interestingly enough, just after an, uh, comments from uh, the Federal Reserve that perhaps we're going to have a slower pace of 
inflation um, in the US as well, and therefore interest rates are not going to rise as fast as before, seems to suggest that perhaps even the peak of the increase in the pace of interest rates hikes may have been reached too. So instead of 75 points uh, that we expected would be happening everywhere in December, we may actually see just 50 basis points increases, which will be good news, I think, for for everybody and certainly good news for the growth of the economies, which are focused, of course, in the uh, Eurozone to go into recession, the big ones at any rate, and uh, and then come out hopefully slightly faster if interest rates also oblige. Mm. Uh, bad news, though, for local communities and high streets, as we see that the trend for bank branches to close is continuing. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, the latest news come from HSBC. Of course, we have to remember that HSBC has said some time ago that it was going to concentrate a lot more on its business in South Asia, so Southeast Asia, and is not going to really be expanding, particularly in the UK. But nevertheless, I think the loss of even more branches um, is a bit of a concern, which is um, which has been announced just uh, recently. Uh, it's closing another 114 branches. Uh, over a period of time, of course, and loads and loads of parts of the UK uh, are going to be affected. That's going to start happening in April. Now, uh, the the really worrying thing about this whole business is, yes, of course, banks can say that people are using a lot less cash, that they don't actually need us to be open anymore, and they're also going to be all these community uh, hubs that are going to be banking community hubs, which are going to be set up so that loads of banks, mainly using also post office branches, can service customers all together, sort of jointly. Well, very little of that has happened so far. And when you look across the UK, something like 5,200 5, branches have closed since 2015, which you know may make sense in terms of banks' profitability, but actually it has devastating impacts on, on high streets, for example. And also local communities and local businesses feel that the decision-making process is now concentrated so much more um, at the centre. So there isn't sufficient understanding of the needs of of businesses in various parts of of the UK. And that's a trend, of course, not just from HSBC, but others too, to just make the decisions more centrally. And that's bad news for many. And and revitalising the high streets, which which should be one of the aims of levelling up as well, um, is made that much more difficult as a result. Vicky, are you like with a very, very tiny helicopter? (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like like you've got a like miniature heliport somewhere near your desk. Oh, I'm very, very sorry about that. There are some, I'm trying to move away. There are some builders outside making a sort of scratching noise. And, and that's what's going on right now. They came and apologised earlier. So m- many apologies from my side. Is that any better? That's much better. But I re- rather like the idea of you being surrounded by tiny little, you know, helicopters. It sounds terribly exciting. Maybe I'll try and do that next time. Let's talk about house prices because it looks like they are set to fall. Well, they are falling on a monthly basis. And the interesting thing in the UK is that, of course, we've had this mortgage interest rate increase that took place as a, uh, when we had the mini budget back in September, of course, at the end of September, September 23rd, when the markets went sort of slightly, um, well, they, they almost, uh, you know, went to meltdown, if you like, the, the, the bond market, where we saw yields increasing very, very significantly. So what you saw then was that the 30-year yield went up to over 5% and mortgage rates then were re-calculated almost immediately. So we saw some mortgage 
interest rates of five or six percent sort of appearing and that put lots of people off and, and of course affected confidence in the housing market very significantly what we're seeing now of course is yes the cost of living crisis is a big issue interest rates nevertheless although the yields have come down short-term interest rates have been going up not everyone is on long-term fixed rates anyway so there's a lot of um uh, people who are still on variable rates so they've seen their interest rate payments increase and and of course wages are not going up hence why the uk is having a bit of a winter of discontent actually not just a bit of a winter discontent, loads of strikes everywhere, particularly public services, uh, where you're seeing increases being demanded in wages to make up for it. What we're seeing, therefore, is that uh, the last couple of months have seen monthly falls in house prices. Um, it varies from region to region. The fall in November was about 1.4%. Still, of course, house prices are still higher than they were a year ago. Um, but the fall was considerably higher than anyone expected. So 1.4% was the, the decline in November. Um, most forecasters thought they would be perhaps 0.4%. So it does suggest that this decline has started. Unless something changes in terms of the monetary environment, then that fall is set to continue. Vicky, thank you very much indeed. That's Vicky Price. Uh, and you are with The Globalist on Monocle 24. exactly is power in the art world? Well, that's the question annually posed by Art Review's Power 100 list. The list is the most established annual ranking of influence in the contemporary art world. And this year's edition has just been unveiled. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Rappolt, who's the editor-in-chief of Art Review. Mark, who's topped the list this year and why? Um, Good morning. Well, I imagine that the People topping the list would be as obscure to your listeners as they were to most of the art world until a few years ago. It's an Indonesian collective called Rangrupa, which was set up in 2000. And this year they curated a documenta in Kassel, Germany, which is an exhibition that happens every five years and generally the most important indicator of what's going on in contemporary art in the world. And I think the interesting thing they did was to approach other collectives who then invited other collectors and other contributors to the exhibition, avoiding the big star names we normally associate with art, until they had about 1,500 individuals involved in the exhibition. So a kind of, ironically, a way of uh, dispensing with the idea, conventional ideas of power. And I think the easiest way to think about it is kind of imagining an exhibition as a social media platform. Um, where everyone has a voice to some degree. And reflects the growing influence of the of the global south, really. Yeah, I think to a degree. I think within the list itself, it's still the minority, but I guess it's the only, the, the second time someone from that part of the world um, has topped the list. What other entries were particularly significant? Any big surprises? Um, I think... Um, in number three, we have uh, unions and unionization, which is related to what Run Group were doing. But I think a different way of imagining the art world in which kind of all the people we would consider minor workers, sort of security guards, docents, invigilators, are sort of becoming more actively involved within it and more recognized within it. At the same time, I think the list as a whole privileges people who do more than one thing, who are not so easily categorized. So. At number eight, for example, we have the photographer Nan Golden, American photographer, who is obviously 
very influential in terms of her artistic practice, but also as influential in her stance against um, unethical funding, in this case, the Sackler family and the related opioid crisis. Um, but generally through the list, there are artists like Zanelli Mahole from Africa and Ibrahim Mahama, who leveraged their kind of fame and influence within the art world to help other artists and to improve the infrastructure within the scenes in their own countries. How is it decided who, who is on the Power 100? Um, it's become quite a complicated process. So there's about 40 individuals around the world who we ask to analyse who's influencing the type of contemporary art made where they're from. And obviously someone in New Delhi is going to have a very different idea of that from someone in New York. Um, so we take those 40 opinions. They Basically all the people they nominate have to have actually done something in the past 12 months and be influential on an international rather than just a local scale. But of course, we realize that influence starts locally as well. And then we have a very long debate about what it means to say, be the most influential person in India versus the most influential person in the US. And that's, I guess, where the contested nature comes. Mm, of course. And what does this mean then for, for those who are on the list and for the art world generally? I think it means a, a shift in the way we think about art and its institutions, that the structures and um, networks within art become more important, as important in some ways as the work itself. And I think it also reveals the extent to which problems, I guess, outside of art, social problems, political problems and economic problems are very much influencing the kind of art that's being highlighted at the moment. Mm-hmm. And do we see the return of of previous artists again and again? Um, to a degree, but I think there's been a, a rapid change as the world has a more global voice, that uh, voices from geographies um, and, I guess, ethnicities that were previously uh, underrepresented become more represented and more vocal and more loud. Mm. Uh, Mark Rappel, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you throughout the morning, uh, playing you some great tracks and uh, highlighting some sharp programming. And then the briefing is live at midday in London. I'll be back with you on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. And just a little throw ahead to the weekend, all of our coverage this weekend will come from our Zurich studio. I'm headed off there with Laura Kramer straight after the briefing on Friday and we'll be there for the Christmas market. So if you are in Zurich this weekend, why not join us at Diffestrasse 90? It will be such fun. Uh, there's always a hot chestnut cellar uh, and we'll be doing some live broadcasting from there. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.